This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, Hurricane Ian ravages parts of Florida and the Carolinas. We'll have the latest. The trail of destruction left behind by Hurricane Ian. Extensive. The death toll? Rising. The timeline for cleanup and rebuild? Months, maybe years. It's not just a crisis for Florida. This is an American crisis. We're all in this together. But for a country still struggling to recover from the pandemic and its economic aftermath, it's yet another test for exhausted Americans, particularly for the millions directly affected by the hurricane. We'll look at what's needed most by those who are impacted by Ian and from officials on the federal, state, and local levels, including FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, Florida Senator Rick Scott, and the mayor of hard-hit Fort Myers, Kevin Anderson. Plus, how did climate change contribute to this natural disaster? Then, more humiliation for Russian President Vladimir Putin in his war against Ukraine. And the Supreme Court convenes with a new justice and some potentially blockbuster cases on their docket. We'll have a preview. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. It has been four days since Hurricane Ian first made landfall in Florida and rescue efforts are still underway. The official death toll stands at around 44, but CBS News has contacted local sheriffs and with their records, the toll stands at 77, directly or in part due to the hurricane. We begin our coverage with Mark Strassman reporting from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For days, even weeks to come, Fort Myers Beach will stay virtually unlivable. 
a marathon of misery. Everybody's tired. Everybody's stressed. More than 800,000 Floridians still have no power. More than 10,000 evacuees now stay in shelters. Another crisis, drinkable water. In Lee County, which includes Fort Myers, a water main break means the taps run dry for its 760,000 residents. In other communities, boil water advisories are tough to follow when there's no power. This is not just a 48-hour ordeal. This is going to be something that is going to be there for days and weeks. With Ian's death toll climbing, a new blame game has its own fury. Lee County leaders may have dithered before ordering evacuations last Tuesday, a day later than neighboring counties. Too late for many to leave before Ian made landfall. A Category 4 hurricane churning across central Florida with a wrath straight from the Old Testament. Ian's second U.S. landfall, the sequel no one wanted to see, happened here in South Carolina. That's the Atlantic Ocean right there, spilling here into the streets of Myrtle Beach. Storm surge flooded this state's low country region, but no death statewide and a general feeling of relief. A lot of prayers have been answered, but I would ask people don't quit yet because it's, it's still coming. But Southwest Florida is in for a major rebuild, and there's no short timeline for that. Take this damaged three-mile causeway. Sanibel Island is now isolated from the mainland. Returning evacuees feel disruption at every turn. We go now to Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott, who joins us from Naples. Uh, good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. It's really tough down here. It's an unbelievable loss of life, and we still have people that they hope are alive, that they're still trying to rescue. So be, please pray for each of one of those. We will. And, and I know that when you were governor of Florida, there were four hurricanes on your watch. Governor DeSantis has said what is happening now is biblical. How would you describe the impact? Well, the storm surge was unbelievable. You know, the, wor the worst storm surge we had with Irma was down in the Keys, and it, just, and it was nine foot. Uh, it just sucks everything in and out of a one-story house. And then we had, as you know, Mexico Beach with Michael uh, my last year. But, you know, in Lee County, they're talking that they might have had 18 foot of storm surge at Sanibel. And you look at, uh, you know, 12, 15 foot of storm surge at Fort Myers Beach and Pine Island. I mean, that's hard to survive. Um, you have to be pre you have to get up pretty high and your structure has to survive. We unfortunately some of its older construction. And so we lost a lot of lot, a lot of buildings. The president said uh, that he may need more money from Congress to help with the response. And I know you and Senator Rubio have talked about more emergency relief being needed. If you're calling for an emergency supplemental, does it need to be paid for offset? Well, I've supported disaster relief. Um, and look, everything you do, you'd love it for, to be paid for. But, you know, we have we have committed, made, we've made commitments that we're going to help our, our, our families, our businesses, our, our states and local governments. And as federal government, we need to do our job. Now we got to watch how we spend our money. Uh, so I'll always try to figure out how you pay for things. But I'm very supportive of FEMA. My experience with FEMA when I was governor is they did their job. Uh, they were a good partner. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not a lead agency. They're a support agency. And they acted like that when I was governor. But the disaster modeling firms have, you know, scale of damage here from 30 billion up to 100 billion. How much money is it that you think you need to go ask Congress for? We're going to find out hopefully 
most most things are covered by insurance. That's what that's what you hope. Now, Florida has has had a problem the last few years with their property insurance market. Uh, so hopefully, uh, the insurance companies will be able to uh, to cover a lot of that. Um, but not but flooding. We'll, we'll see the way the way this has worked in while well, I was governor. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. And so that's one of the issues. Florida has been a uh, significant donor state to flooding. Unfortunately, there's many people that don't have flood insurance either because they didn't know they need to buy flood insurance or because it got too expensive. So we've got to have insurance products uh, that work that people can afford. And that's one thing I tried to continue to build the private flood insurance market when I was governor uh, to, and try to make sure people can get flood insurance and can afford flood insurance because you're right. A lot of it's not covered. If it's not, it's not covered by a normal policy. It's covered by a flood insurance policy. And right. I was up in uh, in Kissimmee yesterday, and there was some flood up there. And no, they, they weren't in a floodplain. Nobody was told to get flood insurance, and they had about uh, probably a foot of water in in their homes, and they were just completely shocked. Well, I mean, is the bottom line here, though, Senator, that some of the communities? have been so hard hit that you need to take a second look here. I mean, maybe some of them should not be rebuilt because of the risk level from extreme weather. What I think you have to look at, look at, should you build in places? Uh, I believe these places are places where people want to live. Uh, they're beautiful places. So what you really have to do is you have to say, I'm going to build, but I'm going to do it safely. Um, after Andrew in 1992, the state completely changed its building codes, which has dramatically reduced uh, the risk of, of damage. While I was governor, we improved our building codes. And I think after this, we're going to learn that we're going to you know, have to improve our, continue to improve our building codes. Senator, uh, before I let you go, I do have a bigger picture question because, you know, disasters are a time when people can come together. Uh, and our country is so incredibly divided. I know you know that. Um, over this weekend, we heard some pretty disturbing rhetoric from the former president who tweeted that Senator McConnell has a death wish. He said some racist things about his wife, the former cabinet secretary, Elaine Chow. Last night at his rally, Georgia Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene made a false claim that Democrats want Republicans dead and they have, quote, already started the killings. Given the level of security threat right now, would you rebuke those comments? Well, I think what we got to do is we got to bring everybody together. I'd also say that what Vice President Harris said yesterday, that our day before yesterday, that you know, if if you have a different skin color, you're going to get relief that's faster. Not what the, that does, that's, that's not what that's not what the Vice either. President so said. So I think what we've got to do. That's not what the Vice President said. She talked about yeah, equity exactly and the problem within FEMA. But I'm specifically asking you about Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and no, 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 President wait, no, no, Trump. No, no, wait, 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 Margaret, Margaret, let's make sure. FEMA has to be colorblind. Mm -hmm. FEMA has to provide support to everybody. Now, I here's what I here's what I'll tell you. I believe that we've got to do. President Trump has talked about this unbelievable spending that's causing inflation hurting the poorest families. I grew up in a poor family. I watched inflation hurt my mom. We've got to how, watch how we spend this money. I know, uh, sir. So gotta, you're talking about sir. You're talking about together. substance, and I would love to talk to you about that. But what I quoted you was a phrase saying McConnell has a death wish. He said racist things about Elaine Chow. And then they have already started the killings. I mean, that's not a policy dispute, Senator. Uh, the language is, is what I'm talking about. It, isn't that dangerous? I, th I, I think we all have to figure out how do we start bringing people together 
and have a common goal to give every American the opportunity to get a great job, their kids to have an education they believe they can be anything, and make sure everybody lives in a safe community. That's what I do every day, and I try to bring people together to do that. And you would agree that that language doesn't bring people together? I believe that what the I believe what the President Trump was talking about is the fact that we can't keep spending money. We are we're going to hurt our poorest families the most with this reckless Democrat spending, and we cannot. We got to stop it. We can't cave into their spending. Okay, that's not what the former president said. Um, and Coco Chow was the phrase he used to refer to a former cabinet secretary, Elaine Chow. He, look. He likes for, you know, he, he gives people nicknames. I'm sure he has a nickname for me, all right? So you can ask him what he means by his nicknames. What I, what, what I want to make sure is I, what I can do. I can try my best to bring people together, and I'm going to try to bring people together. Okay, but I know, Senator, you know that Democrats have not already started the killings of Republicans, as Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. I didn't see what she said, but it's also not helpful what the vice president says when she when she thinks that FEMA is going to treat people differently based on their skin color. We will have the FEMA administrator on the program to talk about equity, um, but already started the killings uh, really stood out to me. So I wanted to make sure you responded to that comment. We'll leave it there. Thank you and good luck. I didn't hear it. Let's bring people together. Please pray, pray for our state. We go now to FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. Uh, Administrator, I know you're very, very busy. You've got states of emergency from Virginia down to Florida. You've got flooding and concerns, West Virginia, Tennessee. Where is your area of greatest concern at this moment? Uh, good morning. Uh, our focus right now is supporting the people of Florida that have had the most significant impacts from this storm. But we also have teams that have been embedded pre-landfall in North Carolina, South Carolina, to make sure that if they had immediate needs, we were able to respond. But right now, we've got a lot of staff, we've got a lot of resources that are embedded across the state in Florida, making sure that we are continuing the first priority, which is saving as many lives as possible and getting the uh, immediate assistance out to those that need it right now the most. Uh, Governor DeSantis said Lee and Charlotte counties were, quote, off the grid. Um, that's where Sanibel Island and Fort Myers, other areas are located. When do you expect things like electricity and water to be back? And, and can those residents move back to places like Sanibel Island this year? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of issues, especially in those areas of the greatest impact. You know, we saw uh, well over two million customers without power immediately following the storm. Um, and the power companies have done an amazing job of getting things restored as quickly as possible. But those hardest hit areas, they're going to take some more time. And we know that there's a water issue right now in Lee County. We brought in uh, support from the Army Corps of Engineers to work with the state, to work with the county officials to assess the extent of that damage. And then what is it going to take to help repair it or at least put some temporary measures in place? But beside that, we know that so many homes I saw firsthand when I was there Friday and Saturday, so many homes completely destroyed. And so we are going to make sure that we are getting the right people in there 
to help provide the temporary support right now, but the long-term needs to help these communities recover. So on that point, the president said if, if someone doesn't have insurance, the federal government will, will provide just under 40 grand for home repairs and just under 40 grand for lost property. Um, given costs right now, do you think that's enough for Florida residents to rebuild their homes? Yeah, there's a couple of things that go into how a community or how an individual recovers, right? Insurance is first, right? And we know that many people um, are either underinsured or have no insurance. Uh, people can register for FEMA assistance. Uh, we have limits in the amount of money that we can give, and our programs are designed to really help jumpstart that recovery process. But then we bring in our partners like the Small Business Administration, which can give low-cost loans to families, not just businesses, but families, um, and our partners at HUD, right? And we're going to work together on what those unmet needs are, what their long-term needs are, and make sure we're providing the resources and the support to those communities, temporary and then long-term, to get these communities back on their feet while they're rebuilding. But when you look at that question of rebuilding, I'm going to ask you something I asked Senator Scott, which was, you know, given the warmer weather, given the rising sea levels, there is concern in some of these coastal communities about rebuilding in the first place uh, and whether it's sustainable or whether you should retreat. How are you going to decide if it's even safe or worth rebuilding in some of these parts of the state? Those are really good questions, Margaret. And when individuals are starting to make decisions about what they're going to do and what their next steps are, they really need to understand what their risk is. And as we rebuild, I think I uh, heard the, uh, the senator say that, you know, Florida has done an amazing job of putting in place stricter and stronger building codes to make sure that as we rebuild, we rebuild more resilient. That's the key. We need to make sure that we have strong building codes because we have risks all over. We've seen damage inland in the state, and we need to have building codes that can make sure that our properties can withstand the impacts that we're seeing from these severe weather events. You heard the interview with Senator Scott, and he talked about your agency. Um, he brought up comments from Vice President Harris, and I want our viewers and you to listen to what she said. It is our um, lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and, and impacted by, by issues that are not of their own making. And, and so women. we, absolutely. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we, we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out at the same place. Yesterday, Florida's governor's spokesperson said that comments are causing undue panic and must be clarified. You're here. I'd like you to clarify them because Senator Scott called on FEMA to be colorblind, really insinuating you're not. Yeah, look, Margaret, I was on the ground. I was on the ground Friday and Saturday. I was uh, assessing the damage personally and talking to survivors. 
there are a lot of people that are going to need assistance as a result of this. And one of the things that uh, I have known and I have experienced responding to other disasters, that there are people that often have a hard time accessing our programs. There's barriers to our program. And one of our focus areas um, since I've been in office is to make sure that we're removing those barriers. So these people that need our help the most are going to be able to access the help that, that we offer. I know that the vice president and the president, they share these same values. And again, I was on the ground uh, Friday and Saturday, and I committed to the governor then that we are going to provide assistance to all Floridians because we know that there are people that are just completely devastated from the storm. We are going to be there to support everybody that needs help. But just to be clear here, um, the senator said the vice president's comments were about if you have a different skin color, you're going to get relief. How do you Again. respond to that? Yeah. Yeah, again, Margaret, our programs support everybody. Um, I would say I believe some of the things the vice president was talking about are the long-term um, recovery and, and um, rebuilding these communities to be able to withstand uh, disasters um, so they can have less impact. We're going to support all communities. I committed that to the governor. I commit to you right here that all Floridians are going to be able to get the help that is available to them through our programs. All right. Um, administrator, and you will also be looking, I imagine, outside Florida at Puerto Rico as well. Uh, we have not left Puerto Rico. We know that they're still responding to the impacts that they had from Hurricane Fiona, another very devastating hurricane that impacted the island just a few weeks ago. We have a strong team that's been there working. They're going to continue to work, and I'm going to be traveling with the president tomorrow um, to talk to people firsthand with him and see what, make sure, right? We just want to make sure that we are giving them everything that they need mm -hmm. to support their recovery efforts. All right, Administrator, good luck to you. And Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. We turn now to Kevin Anderson, the mayor of Fort Myers, Florida. Mr. Mayor, um, the county that you are in was hit very hard. Uh, and we know county residents weren't told to evacuate until Tuesday morning, a day after the neighboring counties. Do you think that was enough forewarning for your residents? Well, you know, uh, Margaret, warnings for hurricane season start in June. And so there's a degree of personal responsibility here. I think the county acted appropriately. Um, the thing is that a certain percentage of people will not heed the warnings regardless. 
um, and some of them lost their lives as a result. Um, I want to ask you about the governor's efforts to you. I know he was visiting the area. What do you know about when the water and electricity will be fully functioning? Now, I can only speak to Fort Myers, which is about 15 miles north of the beach in the island, the Barrier Islands. Uh, we already have uh, electricity slowly returning as well as water service. Uh, we have crews that are working uh, 16 hours a day. They will work seven days a week until we get everything restored. Uh, Senator Scott and the FEMA administrator just spoke about the need to potentially change building codes because of just the incredible devastation that you've seen. Is that the prime issue you've seen with uh, impact? Is it the buildings aren't up to, to snuff or is it that there's just uh, incredibly different weather patterns? So our, most of our damage was right along the, the river and it was caused by flooding. Uh, I was in one of the worst hit areas yesterday in the east side of town. Uh, you can see the newer houses are intact and they're fine, but the older homes, which were built lower and not up to the current codes, they suffered more damage. Mm -hmm. So having solid, uh, good building codes is a key to this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and is that one of the changes you'd like to see, or do you need to have some tough conversations about pulling back from building near the water at all? No, we have good building codes. As I said, the, the newer homes, they withstood the storm. Mm -hmm. So as people uh, uh, tear down and build new, uh, they'll be subjected to the, the newer, tougher okay. uh, building codes. And in future storms, they should be able to weather it a lot better. Well, we will be watching that recovery, Mr. Mayor. We wish you the best of luck um, and we'll be tracking this story. We now turn to our senior national and environmental correspondent, Ben Tracy. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, Ben, we hear Florida's Governor DeSantis say things like this is a 500-year flood event. They've never experienced anything like this. What's making the storm hit differently? Well, I think we have to look at this in the context of climate change. And we should say, first off, that climate change doesn't cause a hurricane to happen. But scientists increasingly, increasingly believe that climate change is making hurricanes stronger and more destructive. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's that the ocean waters are much warmer than they used to be, and warm ocean water is rocket fuel for a hurricane. So when one of these storms passes over this warm water, it just turbocharges this thing, and it's what they call rapid intensification. And we're seeing this more often. They actually believe since 2017 we've had about 30 storms that have rapidly intensified right before they hit the coast. And that's a huge issue for people in these coastal communities because they don't have as much time to prepare for that. And in addition to all of that, climate change is making the atmosphere warmer, and that means there's more water. So there's more rain when these storms hit, and that leads to flooding. So taxpayers just invested this historic amount of money in trying to control climate change. That's what President Biden sold it as and Democrats supported. Um, you also have FEMA sending a record three and a half billion to states to help lessen disaster impact. Is this record investment going where the scientists say it needs to go? 
Well, the scientists would say that any money that is spent to more quickly wean us off of fossil fuels to transition us to renewable forms of energy is where the money is best spent. Of course, if you're the government, you also know that you have to deal with disasters when they happen and the impacts those are having on people and property. So they're trying to do both things here. But you talk about the historic investment. I mean, this is about $370 billion for climate initiatives. But a very small amount of that, only about $4 billion to $5 billion, is going for what they call climate resilience. So this would go to help some of these coastal communities rebuild wetlands, build seawalls, the kinds of things that you need for protection. But scientists will say, as long as we keep burning fossil fuels, we're just digging a hole and we're making that hole bigger. So that's where the money needs to be spent. That's why you hear a lot about some of the renewable energy provisions of this, the electric car credits, the things that we can do in our own homes to stop using fossil fuels. And that's an important part of this story. Um, But again, immediate versus long term. Exactly. And you're going to see projects all over this country where they're building massive infrastructure projects to try to defend the coast. Mm -hmm. But the one thing most people never want to talk about is a phenomenon called managed retreat. And this is not something Americans like to hear, but it's this issue of should we be rebuilding in these areas that are prone to get hit over and over again? And at what point does that just become financially irresponsible if you can't get insurance in these areas? So you then have people who lose their homes, their businesses, and they're just left flat broke. And that's a question for any governor in one of these coastal communities. Ben, great context. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're joined now by the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. Good morning. Good to have you here in person. Morning. Um, I want to ask you first about Hurricane uh, response because you were involved back in 2017 with the response right. to Hurricane Maria, which just devastated Puerto Rico. Um, what are the biggest challenges you see right now, both for that island and for this devastation in Florida? Well, I think the the first issue is the devastation, as you mentioned, what structures, what communities can actually take power. I think in general, and speaking with the power restoration task forces, they've done a good job of marshalling resources, getting linemen and crews down into the areas that can actually be restored. But as you heard from the mayor and uh, the administrator, there are areas that simply just cannot take power right now. And it's going to take time to evaluate, see if they're condemned or otherwise. And so, uh, but again, the, you know, the, the power teams have done a good job in Florida and they've actually, I think, done a good job in Puerto Rico as well after Fiona. When you're looking at, uh, you know, 10 days after Fiona, 90% of the power is restored. In uh, Maria, that took about seven months. 
And they're still, in many ways, on the recovery track from Maria. Yeah, you know, I think uh, over the last few years, they have done a better job of management, of investment, and of maintenance. But now they're at a position where I think they have to think about upgrading the system. They're still a fairly uh, antiquated older system, and they do have to kind of move forward with that. Um, I want to ask you about infrastructure beyond hurricane, of course. Um, We are, what, 36 days from the Mm -hmm. midterms? You have large displacement now of people in Florida. Is that going to have an impact on the ability to carry out? elections? There are plans in place. And, you know, we, we heard uh, the senator talk about Hurricane Michael uh, from 2018, which Mexico Beach was devastated. There are rules and, and uh, systems in place that allow for some flexibility in how the elections are conducted. And they will ensure that those that want to vote can vote. Mm-hmm. If I've seen anything, it's election officials are natural crisis managers and really good at the resilience side of it. Well, they have to be right now, given yep. all the pressures on them. Um, Switching to the cyber front. So you were in office during the midterms Mm -hmm. in 2018 and Cyber Command was pretty explicit that they went on the offense uh, to protect our midterm races at that time, um, taking out Russian operatives to deter spreading disinformation. We know they're watching what's happening this Mm -hmm. year. Um, What does that look like? What is protecting our election against foreign interference look like? Well, you know, as I look at the concerns around the 2022 midterm elections, I have three primary areas of, of, you know, focus. First is the continued domestic efforts to undermine the process, attack workers. The second is this increase in insider risk. And as that all kind of manifests in political instability here domestically, it gives a lot of opportunity and attack surface for the bad guys. We've seen over the last couple of years, the foreign actors, that is, uh, we've seen the Iranians, we've seen the Russians, and even recently we've seen the Chinese start to take some of the Russian plans, and it's almost Russification of Chinese information operations. So what I would look at is more you know, plagiarizing domestic issues and driving wedges into the discourse here in the U.S. Probably not manufacturing new narratives or anything like that, but instead really hitting on the issues that we're already talking about here and just making them that much more heated. Meta took down a small Chinese network trying to influence uh, elections. This Mm -hmm. is the Facebook sphere. Right. Um, Is that the prime platform for disinformation? Well, I I think they're using a number of different uh, techniques, and that's the Chinese. Again, it's still fairly rudimentary and remedial in terms of the the Chinese influence operations. Once they get a little bit more sophisticated, I think that's where they're they're probably going to have a greater impact. But it's not just online. It's not just the social media platforms, they're actually working at the local levels Mm -hmm. to support individual candidates. And this is some reporting, I think, that that may come out in the near future, but it's the Chinese have been very, very active at a local corruption level where the Russians are more focused at the top on, uh, you know, the more disrupting the election process. A good friend in the intelligence community has said, you know, Russia is the hurricane China's climate change in the sense of political interference. The sort of slow creeping coming up on you. Um, I just want to come back. You said insider risk to U.S. elections. What do you mean by that? Well, it's actually we're seeing uh, actual election workers that have been uh, swept up in the continued efforts to delegitimize the 2020 election. And now they're on the inside. They're posing a risk. We've seen in Mesa County, Colorado, Coffee County, Georgia, Antrim County, uh, Michigan, where workers have allowed access by unauthorized people into the system. And 
access to equipment. And even just the other day uh, in the primaries, uh, we saw that there was a worker that uh, plugged a USB drive into a machine. And now those systems are have been rendered or taken out of service. So we, we actually rather than just the foreign uh, interference threats, that I think we really had to think about in 18 and 20. Now we have actual insiders. We have election workers that are posing a risk to the process itself. Well, that's terrifying. Um, Why? So part of the balance for anyone who was in a role like you had, how much do you publicize? How much do you draw attention? And at what point does that undermine confidence rather than raise confidence in in integrity? That's the challenge. Is the administration doing enough on what you just laid out? Well, unfortunately, I don't think that there are a lot of tools right now available to counter both threats to election workers, and we continue to see uh, death threats and under intimidation uh, means against election workers, but then election workers themselves that have been, again, swept up into the process. So the tools aren't necessarily there. We do need local law enforcement, I think, to get more involved in investigating threats, protecting uh, election workers themselves, ensuring that they're not being doxxed or their public information or their personal mm-hmm. contact information is being released so they can get so they get more threats. Uh, so this is an area that I think Congress needs to take a hard look at. Are the right deterrence measures in place from criminal statutes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then do we have the investigation techniques? It is, uh, you know, I personally have received a significant number of death threats and other, uh, you know, other threats. Mm-hmm. And some of them come in through anonymous, uh, yeah. you know, through anonymous means like proton mail. We do need more uh, attention on these threats. Yes. Otherwise, we're going to see a shortage of election workers. That is quite a warning. Chris, thank you for joining us. We're going to continue to track that story um, and turn to yet another crisis right now, which is uh, the Trump administration national security advisor uh, in 2017, retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who joins us. Um, H.R., thank you for um, updating us on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. I want to get your reaction to what Defense Secretary Austin called a significant development on the battlefield uh, in the past 48 hours. Um, What do you see happening and, and what do you forecast as Vladimir Putin's next move? Hey, good morning, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Well, this is a, a, a tremendous victory for uh, for the Ukrainians, and it's a victory that I think that they could turn into a cascading series of, of defeats uh, of Russian forces. This is the the, the encirclement of, of Lyman and the, and the and the Russian forces pulling back. But also, in, in the last two days, the Ukrainians also simultaneously. Uh, defeated a, a Russian a Russian counterattack and also made progress further in the south near the strategically important city of Kherson. Uh, and I think, Margaret, what we might be at here is really at the precipice of uh, of really the collapse of the Russian army in Ukraine, a moral collapse. And and uh, I think you know, they they must really be at a breaking point. If you look at just the numbers of casualties, the vast area that they're trying to defend. And now, of course, Russia is trying to mobilize uh, conscripts and send them to to the front untrained. And and I think it's very important to to also understand that these forces that are in full retreat now uh, out of Lyman were really the first round of mobilization. Remember when Putin Mm -hmm. was trying to recruit more and and more people with paying about three times the the average wages to get so-called volunteers to go forward? Those forces were hastily trained, thrown into that front, and these are the forces that are collapsing just right right now. Uh, Well, and as that happens on the battlefield, rhetorically you hear 
President Putin raise the volume, again, dangling that nuclear threat on Friday. Um, and there was another Russian leader who talked about using low-yield nuclear weapons. It's not clear what NATO or the U.S. response would be if Russia used a nuclear tactical weapon on the battlefield in Ukraine. What do you think it should be? Well, I think the message to him is if you use a nuclear weapon, it's a suicide weapon. And, and the response from NATO and the United States doesn't have to be nuclear. Uh, I, I, first of all, I, I would say, Margaret, he's under extreme pressure. I mean, you, you have the failures on the battlefield, which we we've talked about, but also the mobilization's failing. I mean, what he's done is he's mobilized almost 300,000 people to leave the country. These are, these are men who are fleeing to, to neighboring countries to, to escape this, this conscription. And you have the Russian people now saying, OK, I thought this was a special military operation that, that Putin said, hey, just leave this to me. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Now he's going to them to bail him out. Uh, with this with this mobilization and what you're seeing you know, among the hyper nationalist group of of bloggers and and uh, and even on state media is a blaming of the military and what the military is going back to Putin is saying hey it's not our fault we just need more troops so it's this cycle that he's responding to with the only quiver he has left which is to you know, to, to to uh to, to threaten uh the use of a nuclear weapon well, but I'll tell you Margaret I don't think a nuclear weapon is usable there. You know, so I, I think that we ought to take it seriously. We have to. But we, we ought to, to not uh, allow this to cow us in terms of the right. support for the Ukrainians. Right. Well, the other weapon he has is energy, of course, and uh, tracking this potential sabotage on the gas pipeline. Um, I want to also ask you about when you were in office back in 2017, which is the first time that the U.S. gave um, offensive weapons to Ukraine. Um, I remember when you were put in that position of um, having to explain a conversation then President Trump had with Russian officials in the Oval Office where he mentioned classified information um, and you you called it wholly appropriate at the time. Given what's going on now, with this investigation into the classified material at Mar-a-Lago, um, were you ever uncomfortable with the former president's handling of classified information? Well, more, remember, I left in, in February, March of, of 2018, but while I was there, I did not see any problems in handling of, of classified information. And, and what you're talking about really is a session in which the president did not disclose uh, classified information, but somebody leaked it and then it was published in a newspaper. So uh, the, the classified information. I, I think what is important is to go back to that period and that provision of javelins of the defensive capabilities to the Ukrainians was really important. And, and the argument I made to President Trump at the time was, was, hey, these people are telling you that it's provocative to provide Ukraine with defensive capabilities. Actually, what provokes Putin is weakness. And he was persuaded by that argument. And I think that argument is still relevant today. I mean, as, as Putin is encountering these difficulties, I think it's now time to remove some of the restrictions that we've put on ourselves in terms of the support to give the Ukrainians. And I'm talking about really long-range surveillance capabilities tied to long-range precision strike. And yeah. that's really what they need, I think, to, to maintain the momentum militarily at this stage. I have a follow-up question on that, but just to button up the question I asked you, that was a no. You were never uncomfortable with the hand handling of classified information? Okay. No, you know, Margaret, there were systems in place. I don't know what happened to those systems, you know, but, but, I, but I was never uncomfortable with it while I was there. But, you know, that was a long time ago now. Okay. Um, I know... When you're in office, you never like answering counterfactuals, but you're not in office. So um, w was Vladimir Putin so committed to this invasion that he would have gone through with it 
no matter what? I don't think so. Think about all the support that we've given now to the Ukrainians. What if we had done that a few years ago? I think Putin may have come to the conclusion, well, Ukraine cannot be, uh, can, cannot be subsumed at an acceptable cost. And of course, he was wrong in all the assumptions that led to the invasion. And he's been proven wrong by courageous Ukrainians uh, who are defending their sovereignty. But I think deterrence by denial for us was a failure. I mean, in many of the actions that we took in, in the months before uh, before the invasion, almost, I think, inadvertently greenlighted it, you know, pulling our forces out of the Black Sea, yeah. listing all the things we weren't going to do. And I think the Biden administration has recovered from that uh, very well. But but I think now's the time, Margaret, yeah. uh, to lift restrictions on the support that we're giving Ukrainians so they, they can finish this fight on their terms. All right. H.R. McMaster, thank you very much for your insight today. We'll be back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Tomorrow is the first Monday in October, which means a new Supreme Court term and new Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson is now on the job. Chief legal correspondent Jan Crawford is here with us. Uh, Jan, this is a change. How much of a development is it to have a new justice on this court? Well, I mean, obviously, we have an historic new justice, the first black female justice on the Supreme Court. She'll take her seat on that bench tomorrow for arguments for the first time. We have four women on the court now. That's never happened before either. Uh, But what hasn't changed is this is a court that's firmly turned to the right. You've got six conservative justices, three liberals. It's a court that's willing to rethink decades of progressive rulings. So despite all the historic nature Uh, Justice Jackson really won't change the balance of the Supreme Court at all. You were here in June and you left with kind of an ominous statement in talking about potential political earthquakes coming out of Supreme Court decisions like what we saw out of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. The first key court case is Tuesday. What should we be expecting? Well, I, I mean, let me just say right off the top, though, I mean, buckle your seatbelts, because as contentious as last term was, I think this term has the potential to be equally divisive. You're going to have issues on affirmative action, voting rights, uh, LGBTQ uh, discrimination, environmental cases, all of these cases, and they're starting right away on Tuesday with a major voting rights case from Alabama. Uh, Challengers are saying that Alabama is diluting the power of black voters because they're packing most of the state's black voters into one legislative district. They say there should be two. 
Uh, Alabama is saying, uh, well, we shouldn't even be considering race in drawing these legislative districts. Uh, that would violate the Constitution. If the court agrees with that, that would be a major rethinking of the Voting Rights Act. So this is a big case uh, with significant implications well beyond the state of Alabama. And you but but that's not the only issue mm -hmm. this month on race. At the end of the month, we've got that affirmative action case coming out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina that is asking the Supreme Court, a group of white and Asian American students, uh, to say that any consideration of race in admissions, affirmative action in college admissions, violates the Constitution. I expect the court to agree with that decision and end the use of affirmative action, obviously quite a controversial decision. Uh, then they have the uh, the case involving a Colorado website designer and whether or not uh, she can be forced to design a website for same-sex couples who are getting married, uh, despite her uh, views that that mm -hmm. would be wrong. And she says it violates her free speech rights. And then, you know, if that weren't enough, another case <laughs> on voting rights. Uh, and this is all just coming down the pike quickly. Oh, another case that could undermine uh, the, the role of state courts in deciding and reviewing election procedures. So they'll continue to take more cases, but this is a Supreme Court that is saying, we're being asked to decide these cases and we're going to do it. And even if it means our opinions are unpopular. Well, and we've seen with public polling that there is this perception of a politicized court and Gallup's numbers, uh, they hadn't seen uh, a d drop like this in confidence since they began asking the question. Right. And, you know, we have seen in the past controversial decisions lead to a dip in the court after Bush versus Gore. The court re recovered from that. The question is now, is the basic legitimacy being qu being questioned at all? Can they recover? And this is going to be uh, a huge question. I know the justices themselves have been making public um, comments. Uh, Jan, you're going to be back with us. I can tell you that much. Um, we'll be back uh, with all of you in just a moment. It's been a sad week for us here at CBS News. Our Bill Plant, a remarkable journalist who was part of our family for more than 50 years, died Wednesday at the age of 84. In his legendary career, Bill covered some of the biggest stories for CBS News in and outside of Washington. But for us, Bill was a treasured friend and mentor, particularly to dozens of producers, correspondents, cameramen who worked with him on the White House beat over the 32 years he reported to our tiny little CBS booth down the hall from the briefing room. Bill's smile, his booming broadcaster voice. Did you make a mistake in sending arms to Tehran, sir? No. His sense of humor. You're never too old to do something stupid! his never-ending energy and stamina are all among the things that we will miss the most. Bill made us better journalists and better people, and he taught us how to take a step back from the pressure of the news of the day to reflect, and pause, and embrace the experience. He loved life, and we are all grateful to have known him. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott, the Mayor of Fort Myers, Florida, Kevin Anderson, CBS News Senior National and Environmental Correspondent Ben Tracy, former Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Chris Krebs, former National Security Advisor Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former Advisor to President Trump, and CBS News Chief Legal Correspondent Jan Crawford. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. 
Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker. The Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.